save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning, and welcome to Our Wild World. We're going to take a journey through conservation today, through the eyes and life of my guest, Stephen Capra, author, journalist, explorer, and executive director of Bold Visions Conservation, whose mission is to protect preserve and restore the wildlands, waters, and wildlife through advocacy, education, and spirited community involvement, working directly with the arts communities to to promote the connections between art and conservation, as we are more powerful through creative ventures and engaging the younger generation to join in securing their future through a strengthened land ethic, reforming wildlife management toward this land ethic, and why biodiversity is critical. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you, Ellie. Great to be with you. It's great to be with you. We've been talking for quite some time, and uh, you sent me many of your writings, which are absolutely wonderful. And um, so people, my listeners, you can find that on uh, Stephen's Bold Visions website, which is bvcsite.com businesscatalyst.com and be sure to go to his blog because his right Stephen's writings are absolutely amazing and on a wide variety of subjects so very excited to talk to you because we're going to cover some ground but uh, let's start by talking about you how did you get into conservation and what does being a conservationist in today's world mean to you well, let me start with that first point you just made. Being a conservationist in uh, today's world is a little different than the conservationist I began as. Um, and I think that's an important point. Um, my life began in New York City, as you know. Um, so I was an unlikely candidate to be a conservationist. Growing up in the heart of Manhattan in the shadow of the Empire State Building, um, I played roller hockey across the street from the United Nations almost every day of my life. So it was a very different world and a very different space for me. Um, but a couple of things came to me living in New York City, and that was a, a tremendous desire to have space, uh, a tremendous desire to feel that sense of open space because I was so confined. Uh, the other thing was uh, growing up in New York City of the 60s and 70s made you a bit of a fighter. Um, it was not the uh, G-rated city we have today. It was a rough-and-tumble place. And you had to learn to take care of yourself in order to survive. And you also learned uh, very quickly the value of good friends and the value of, uh, of a clean environment where you could find it. I mentioned this in the course of what you were just saying because for me as a young man, um, any chance I got to get away from the city was exceptional. And any chance I got to get into the country opened my eyes. And I think uh, as I left the city in my high school years and went to college in the mountains of North Carolina, I began to discover a whole new world. Now, that world to me was one that was a combination of my experience in the outdoors, my love of photography and, and photographing the wild world, 
Um, and I think also reading the literature of great conservation heroes. And I think from that, you know, the Marty Murrays, uh, the John Muirs, uh, the number of people that I read, um, and, and it was everything I could get my hands on, San, Cal- San County Almanac, you name it. I wanted to learn from the great minds who really understood conservation, uh, and they became my heroes. So I guess my early understanding of conservation was that you, as an individual, could make a difference, and that you could go out and make change based on your own feelings about conservation. And that's what sort of got me back into conservation, because I actually moved back to the city in my early 20s. One day I picked up a copy of National Audubon, and I read about a place called the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And... I had spent so much time dreaming of the Great Plains and reading about the Great Plains and, and that diversity of wildlife. And it was so heartbreaking and striking to me that we could have destroyed something so magical. And when I read about the refuge, I said, my God, there's still a place left. There's still one place left we haven't destroyed in the United States. And that was incredibly compelling to me. It was compelling to the point that uh, I started reserving places at street fairs in New York City and having a stand and handing out information about the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which was met with, I I think, a little bit of dismay from people in the city who didn't know what in the world a young man was doing talking about a place in Alaska in the heart of Manhattan. So Uh, you you were trying to, at, at that time reconnect the dots that it's that wilderness and wildlife and open spaces are not someplace far away that we can connect to them in our minds and how critical that is yeah and i think one of the things from reading so many uh, of the authors i read was the sense that we had that i may never see this place but it's important to know for me that it's there that exists And I think that was a sense of selflessness uh, that many of us have lost in the modern world. But uh, I was very taken by that feeling. And in fact, um, it was a guiding principle for me. I mean, I've explored a lot of land, uh, but I've never made it to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. But I worked on the issue now for 30 years. And um, I worked on it because I always said to myself, I may never get there, but it's important to me to know that it's protected. Um, And so in my doing what I did in New York City, I was ultimately hired by the Wilderness Society to come to Washington, D.C., and then began touring the United States, giving talks on the the need to protect the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And it's under a lot of threat today, so it's interesting that you would bring that up today, because um, all over the news right now, with our current political uh, standing and administration and president and we'll get into this a bit later uh more in our conversation today that many of these places our national reserves our national monuments and our national parks are being um are under threat and being cut back but um meanwhile let's go back a little bit you um you were hired by the wilderness society and you took a hike right well, what I did was after touring the, uh, the Midwest and the eastern parts of the United States speaking on the refuge, I guess I, I felt inside that I wanted to do more. Um, and I wanted at that time 
to do something that would raise awareness and get people's attention. And I wanted to also do something to educate myself better. And so I decided to walk the length of the Continental Divide from Mexico to Canada. This was 1990. And uh, so I left my job at the Wilderness Society. And this was one of the interesting things that I'll get back to in terms of how I see the conservation movement. Um, I left the conservation movement at that time to pursue the hike, and I set it up to give talks along the way. So in every state, I would come out of the hike at a certain point and go into major cities and give talks about the value of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. So I was hiking the wildest part of the United States to save the wildest part of America, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And so began the hike in March of 1990 uh, in the border of Mexico and New Mexico and proceeded north. Um, And what I wanted to really understand was the connection to nature, to see what the state of our public lands were like, and to meet with the ranchers, miners, loggers, the people that we fight with, to get a better understanding of their mindset and to see wildlife as best I could in that setting. Uh, The hike took eight and a half months, uh, and that was time allotted to give talks. Um, And I discovered some amazing things along the way. Um, uh, I discovered uh, wildlands that were in peril. Um, what What you come to realize is you can go across all that public land. That's a 3,200-mile walk. And the BLM lands are basically uh, been uh, very diminished by livestock grazing. Almost everywhere I went was a cow field, uh, cow manure, um, grasses down to the bone. I saw a lot of casings for poisons to kill coyotes. I saw dead coyotes as a result of ranchers' impacts. Um, I met many a rancher out there who described things to me in very uh, black and white terms about society or about uh, how they perceive predator species. Um, I spent time with miners and loggers who, to me, were a little less uh, uh, maybe uh, threatened by society as a whole, but still hanging on to their way of life and seemingly oblivious to what was happening to the lands around them. Um, They saw, as ranchers did very often, that this was an area that was designed for them for profit. Um, And while we got along and while we shared camaraderie, um, it reinforced, I think, the principles I always felt in my gut. And that was, you know, we have this great land of biodiversity. We have this great place that is being dishonored. Um, in many ways by uh, practices that at this day and time are outdated. They were outdated in 1990. Um, many times I'd be hiking on trails and suddenly the trails would disappear into a clear cut. Um, and it, I would have moments like that. Um, or, as I said, we would see uh, destruction in, in, in grazing areas that were really hard to comprehend. And then suddenly we would get in the wilderness area. Or suddenly we would arrive at the entrance of a national park. And all of a sudden you began to see the potential, what land was supposed to be, what it was like to coexist with wildlife. 
Um, and you began to understand, why isn't there more? I asked the question, why don't we have more of this? And what's wrong with our thinking when we're not trying to enhance the land and doing all we can to bring wildlife back? And to get back to that place, in my imagination, that place I call the Great Plains of our country, um, where we had biodiversity, where we had wolves and grizzly bears uh, that were in tall grass, um, and where, you know, we had a sense of earth imbalance. And, um, and so, so, I, so what you were seeing was the fracturing of our landscape. And in 1990, there was a lot more open space, of course, than there is today. So I can imagine if you took that walk today, what what you would see and this conflict between ranchers and carnivores not so much the ungulates because that can get along but as you had said um we break everything down into monetary units we think about land and uh wildlife in monetary terms and then is as much as ranchers talk about how much they love their cows or their sheep or their horses they speak just as enthusiastically about their hate and dislike for carnivores without ever thinking of this carnivore's life and need to survive and that reducing the carnivores changes the landscape if we keep it all just for cows and sheep what we're doing to biodiversity. So I think this is a, a core part of what we're talking about and talk about in future, that if we can go about rejoining co- connectivity corridors that you were seeing on this walk, what that could do. It, I think it has to go beyond that too, though, because we've got to rein in the grazing empire in this country. And I, I think a Many conservation groups are making the mistake of saying that there can be coexistence. And I think that like, uh, well, like what we've seen with many industries, there is a time and place for it. Uh, And then there's technological advances. And it's interesting to me in society, we seem to accept technological advances that will get rid of steel workers or coal miners. And we say, well, that's progress. Well, we have this. Uh, aversion to getting rid of things because we suddenly understand from an ecological standpoint they're not logical and so we sit here and we allow the travesty that's occurring on our western public lands in particular because of a sense of the cowboy image when in fact we have to look at it and say our understanding of conservation has grown much like technology has grown. And with that better understanding, there's no place left for this in a modern world. Or if there is a place, it's got to be a much smaller place with a smaller group of ranchers that are really going to do the best practices possible on the smallest amount of land. But quite frankly, those are few and far between, and they tend to be more wealthy landowners who are willing to invest to do the right thing uh, versus many of the ranchers, the, the Bundys of the world, that are out there on our public lands. And this is a huge topic of 
discussion right here. So perhaps this is a good time to take a break so that we can come back into a better understanding of wild lands and, and game management and how that is so politically tied in these days and um, getting more and more fractured where we need to, as you said, we need to rein in some of these uh, political agendas to create a much better ethic um, for our public lands. So stick with us. Um, Stephen's got a lot of knowledge in this area and Bold Visions Conservation. So we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Have you ever given any thought to what is behind your insurance coverage? Many of us don't think of it as more than that premium you pay on a regular basis. Of course, until you actually need to use it. On CYA with Rhonda, you'll learn to cover your assets and find out what all of that insurance mumbo-jumbo really means. If you're looking for a lucrative career option... Rhonda Lukey will explain how to get into the insurance business. Listen live every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time and 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. 
If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie. You're listening to Our Wild World and my guest, Stephen Capra of Bold Visions Conservation. And I want to reiterate that website. It is bvconservation.org. B as in boy, V as in Victor, conservation.org. And I strongly suggest our listeners uh, go there and check it out because there is so much information that we're just going to touch the tip of the iceberg today from Stephen's perspective and uh, well we hope to get into some of the projects that Bold Visions is doing but this is the background of how a conservationist comes to be and I think it's really important for our youth out there today to see how you can get engaged. So at the last section we were talking a lot about public lands and game management and carnivores. So Stephen let's let's talk let's get into this. Um, our public lands are run under the USDA, uh, the United States Department of Agriculture, and that's under the uh, United States Department of the Interior. And under this Republican administration, it's being torn apart. And you touched on mining and coal and talking to the ranchers, livestock, and this disconnect between the um, working of the land for human benefit versus leaving the land and public lands in particular for wildlife. So let's get into that a little bit more. Okay. Well, let's start by just looking at the Republican agenda as a whole, because that's an important starting point. We have seen Republican administrations, Republican administrations really since the, with the exception of the Nixon administration, going back to the Eisenhower administration, who have really begun moves to hurt our public lands, um, and decimate wilderness. And it really coalesced with the Reagan administration and Jim Watt. And since then, every administration that has been Republican has taken more and more of an ax to the environment as we've gone down the line. So we can argue all day it's it's not party, but in fact, party has played a role in it. Um, and, and what we've seen, you know, the Bush administration kept pushing more outrageous things and more outrageous things. But this time we have a president devoid of a conscience who's willing uh, to let uh, Mr. Zinke do whatever he, he feels is worth his wild. And really, I think Zinke is doing the bidding of the president who really doesn't care about public lands in general. That's a very dangerous place to be. Uh, we have no checks and balances. And so, therefore, we have a very dangerous situation, an unprecedented situation now. But it shouldn't be a surprise to people, given prior Republican administrations who have attacked the environment. That said, now we have a very particular issue with these wildlife agencies. Uh, you touch on uh, wildlife services, for example. I mean, here's an agency uh, with a budget designed to go and kill predators, uh, more or less. And they're doing a very effective job. They're doing it at the behest of the ranching, the livestock industry. Um, they're doing it at the behest of Republican congressmen uh, and senators who are working in conjunction with those ranching and livestock interests, and in some cases working with the oil and gas industry or other things. Well, we're seeing... Uh, a, a rollback of regulations that are in concert 
with supporting these industries and giving them more free reign on our public lands. Um, and the net result is a real impact to our wildlife. And, but you have to look at this uh, in a much broader perspective. We can look at it as a national issue that is coming from Washington. But let's really step back for a moment and take a look at our, our agencies on a state level. Um, every state has a game commission. Um, and that's really the darkest hour for wildlife in our Western public lands. These game commissions have been operating since the turn of the century, and they were there originally to help get wildlife back in balance. But those commissions that run those uh, agencies uh, or direct those agencies are generally those that have contributed to governor's races. Um, These are plum appointments. And many of the people involved are, if you take New Mexico, where I'm from as a whole, uh, these are NRA-supported livestock industry uh, specialists that are brought on board uh, to decimate wildlife. Um, And they are not there in the best interest of wildlife. And one great example of that is the battle over Mexican wolves uh, here in New Mexico and Arizona. And the Game Commission is finally coming out with some final rulings on it that they are, they're touting as, you know, a great compromise to help Mexican wolves. And most authorities here would tell you is going to lead to the extinction of the Mexican wolf. Um, this is an agency that if you sit in in meetings and listen to, you would think you were sitting in a meeting in 1935, listening to the kind of viewpoints and ideas that are coming from these commission members. Um, a look at the New Mexico Game Commission will show you guys with heavy oil and gas interest, people who have worked on coyote killing contests, uh, lawyers for the oil and gas industry. Uh, you don't see anybody there who's a conservationist. And if I look around Idaho or Wyoming or other states across the West, you're going to see similar things. You're going to see people who don't have a direct tie to conservation, but you see have a direct tie to helping livestock interests, oil and gas interests. And that's not helping our wild, uh, our diversity on our public lands, and it's not helping our public lands as a whole. So let me ask a question. With the Game Commission state on the state level, how does this connect to U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and um, the two sides of that, the political agenda appointee part to the field guys that are more like you and I in our outlook and see and walk this land and see the imbalance to the Department of Interior and Wildlife Service? Where... Where does it start to fall apart? Where's kind of the soft line or hard line where it goes from a Washington, D.C.-based political people who have never gotten into the wild agenda to those who work in these same agencies that see it like you do and like I do? Well, let me give you, let me give you some understanding based on conversations I've had. Let's take Benjamin Tuggle. He's the regional director of Fish and Wildlife Service in the Southwest. Uh, Benjamin Tuggle's been there for a number of years now. In conversations with Mr. Tuggle, he said things to me like this. Congressman Steve Pierce has a boot on my neck demanding that these wolves be killed. Okay? Uh 
So here's a regional director of the Fish and Wildlife Service telling me that a congressman from our state, a Republican congressman, the only Republican in New Mexico on a federal level representing us, has a boot on his neck to kill wolves. This is the regional director in charge of reintroducing Mexican wolves, and a Republican congressman is telling him he wants them all dead. Now, Mr. Tuggle says to me, you know, I'm only a few years away from retirement. I got two daughters in college, and I don't want to rock the boat. Well, guess what? What's going to happen to wolves? We're going to lose them. We're going to lose them. And so we have a problem from the start right there, and that's a very personal, direct threat coming from a congressman to a regional director of Fish and Wildlife Service, and it trickles down from him to those people out in the field, to those people who don't want to lose their jobs, and God knows when we talk to federal, anybody in a federal government position, don't take away my retirement. And so if I have to hear that one more time as a person with little or no retirement, I kind of get tired of listening to that logic when I'm trying to protect wildlife in the wild and bring back biodiversity. And so we have that problem. Then we have Mr. Tuggle interacting with the state, uh, the state game commission and the pressure the game commission is putting on them. And let me give you a little examples. We have Ted Turner here in New Mexico. Ted Turner has three ranches here, and one of those ranches is a staging area for Mexican wolves that are put there before they're released into the wild. Well, suddenly, the Game Commission says we're not going to let Turner's Ranch have the permit for the staging area anymore. Or suddenly, they say we're not going to allow any direct releases from his ranch onto public lands. And so then we start seeing the pressure being put on Turner, and we see the pressure being put on the uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, who up to now has had that fairly routine situation. Well, why is that occurring? Well, because we have a Republican governor in New Mexico who has suddenly decided that that's how the course of things is going to be. Because before we had uh, Governor Martinez, we had Bill Richardson, who was very supportive of the Wolf Recovery Program and had met with ranchers many times and talked about getting state money to ranchers to help them with the wolf recovery. What did ranchers say? We don't want your money because in the end, they don't want wolf recovery. And so what ranchers have done very effectively over this time, and this is how they've thought, they, they have pushed back against the agencies, is they've said no to everything. It's a, and, it, and it's really an interesting tactic because what's happened in the environmental community is many groups have been over backwards to work with ranchers. Well, all the time, these ranchers are saying no to any help. Uh, from the federal government or from the state government or to try to work with agencies to allow the Mexican wolf recovery. So we have what I would call a divided conservation community sending out mixed signals depending on the organization. And we have a unified uh, livestock grazing community that's saying no to everything. This has been um, something that I've talked about many times on this program is the division between the united front of what you just said, the, the agenda of the politicians, and a very fractured front on the, the conservation side and um, where the money goes. So there's a lot of public money, uh, tax dollars, and funding, lobbying funding from big corporate interests and uh, for grazing and ranching on our public lands and small money 
by comparison for these recovery programs. So Wild Eyes at one point, we worked in the Red Wolf, uh, Mexican uh, Red Wolf recovery program using a uh, process called condition taste aversion. And we did that down in the Socorro in uh, New Mexico, right? Yeah. And um, so what it is is uh, changing the carnivore's behavior to dislike eating cows and we've done other programs on that and it's a workable thing and we've presented it we did work with u.s fish and wildlife and um did treat a series of wolves that were then released to another area um away from the socorro and it worked um we're finding the same unwillingness for ranchers who live with carnivores wolves mexican wolves lions we've done this treatment with uh, mountain lions we've done it with jaguars we've done it with wolves uh, mexican wolves gray wolves and it works but they refuse to take this on as another tool in the toolbox and continue to use those methods that are barrier methods fladry lights range riders so there is I, i've come up against this wall uh, that you talk about of unwillingness and just say no to any effort to find a way to recompense or change the dynamic. So you know, carnivore comp- uh, carnivore killing compensation is a money pit. So how do we go about, with your knowledge here and your expertise in this, how do we go about changing this mindset? Well, I think the first thing is that the conservation community as a whole has to come together with a one message on what they're doing with wolf recovery. Um, I think for far too long, um, you know, we've allowed uh, especially uh, 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 defenders of wildlife to kind of dictate policy on wolf recovery. And that's really been a disaster. This idea that we're going to work together uh, with ranchers completely. Um, one thing I learned, and I learned this because I spent nine years working to create two national monuments in New Mexico, and I can only tell you honestly what I went what I went up against. Uh, you know, in the nine years of, of creating the two monuments, uh, especially the Southern Monument, uh, which was the uh, Oregon Mountain Desert Peaks, that was a campaign that I I started. I hired the staff. Uh, I went down and I had the initial meetings with the ranchers. Um, and basically, what the ranchers told me then was go to hell. And I said that's fine. I said, but we're going to have to find a compromise uh, in order to move forward on legislation. Uh, and we're going to work with you on boundaries, etc. And year after year. We met with them. Uh, we went out to individual ranches. I rode horses, uh, you know, buck hay, whatever you want, um, and spent time talking with ranchers, uh, drank with them, did whatever you could to get along. And year after year, they said, go to hell. Um, and year after year, more threats, uh, more intimidation. And we, we worked with the senator's offices, and we, we met and we talked about some compromise legislation and and the initial legislation was to protect about 220,000 acres. And we went through the process. We built coalitions. We had great support in the community. Um, and every step of the way, the ranchers said, go to hell. And 
you know, what I finally said uh, at about year seven was, okay, you know, we've done all we can. We've done all the outreach possible. Um, the senator's office agreed that everything we could do had been done um, and that they didn't see a way forward on the legislation. So I said, fine, let's triple the acreage and we're going to go for a national monument. We're going to have the president do it. And that's what we got. And so I think sometimes when you're dealing with the ranching interest, you cannot sit there and bend over backwards. Sometimes you have to exert some power and show them if you continue to act this way, there are actual results that are going to come that are going to be harmful if you are not willing to cooperate. And so what the ranchers got in southern New Mexico by their actions of saying hell no was they got they got triple the amount of acreage protected than they wanted. Uh, and, and I think that's a strategy that has to be employed. It cannot be always that we're bending over backwards to support them. They have to make concessions. Um, and I think you see that in any political climate. And what we've done for far too long is try to pamper them and try to cooperate, and we keep losing. And we have to change the structure of game commissions at a state level. Uh, it can either be done away with, uh, or we can say to ourselves, we are going to have to create a commission that is much more diverse, that's going to have two or three conservationists always appointed on that commission. Um, we can't have people on that commission that have direct ties to the oil and gas industry. Um, what part of game commission does the oil industry have? You know, so there's a lot of things that have to change in this equation, but we have to get to a fundamental understanding that we go back to. What is our goal? Is our goal biodiversity or is our goal to destroy our public lands? Is our, are our public lands for all Americans or are our are our public lands simply a place that are there for the oil and gas and coal and mining interests or livestock interests? That's not what they were set up for. They were set up to be protected. Um, and we've had many a great person, man and woman, who have written and talked about and showed us the way. We've had great scientists to show us the value of this. And what we're doing is we're, we're selling ourselves short. We're selling future generations short by the ignorance and the short-term gains we're allowing. Ranching in New Mexico makes no sense. I mean, go down to southern New Mexico and take a look. There's no reason that you have cows there. I just came from a ride back east, and I was, I was sitting there looking at all the happy cows on the east coast, and the Midwest and saying, what on earth are we doing with cows in southern New Mexico? Um, it's not a happy place to be a cow. And, um, and for their sake and for the sake of the land, we've got to turn this around. And we've got to stop allowing the scapegoating of environmentalists by this president and by others that seem to paint a portrait of elitism when we're talking about the land. This is the heart and soul of America it's the heart and soul of our survival. And if we can't allow biodiversity, uh, we're going to lose. Um, it's that simple. Well, thank you for that great, passionate voice because it's critically important. And the point I keep referring to that 
mostly happens in most of these conversations is compromise. So we need to step away for a short break, but stick with us because we're going to come back and talk about the things we can do and how you can help support your Bold Vision and Bold Vision's conservation. So we'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. 
If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. We're having a in-depth conversation today on what conservation and conservationists are today in the United States, across America, and deeply in the American West, and that a lot of the agendas are created in deeply urban places, such as Washington, D.C., or at the White House, or at the state level, and um, very rarely does that ever get out and touch the wild, and the compromises the conservation organizations and conservationists have had to make and bending over backwards to get just to gain just a little bit of ground and what Stephen is helping us understand is that's not working anymore and that we have to turn this around so Stephen let's talk about what the conservation movement is today because it has changed and then further how Young people, everybody today can get more involved to create a more unified conservation agenda and how we must work together. Well, I think the, the conservation movement has is, is become a, a very different place. And I, I pointed it out when I, when I did my hike from Mexico to Canada many years ago. When I finished that hike, I assumed that that was going to be a great resume piece for me to work in the conservation community. When I finished that hike, no one hired me for 10 years. Um, and that was the first wake-up call to me about the conservation community. And then I got back in the conservation community finally. And I realized that we had become, quote-unquote, very professional. And what happened is there's just been endless training sessions I was sent to that promoted a very professional, very – uh, taking away the individual voice of a person who could be a leader and making it more about the organization and then building what I would call corporate environmentalism. And so we have all these major groups, Defenders of Wildlife, uh, you know, Center for Biological Diversity, whatever, that have become multi, multi-million dollar powerhouses within the conservation community. And what it's done is much like we see Amazon or other things, it's swallowed up a lot of small local-based organizations. Um, and it's, it's, it, they have become behemoths on their own. And they are big power players that you, you know, you're threatened if you go against. And their philosophy seems to be the dividing, you know, the divine wisdom that everybody follows. And, um, I think it's a mistake, um, and that's partly why I started Bold Visions Conservation. Um, my thinking, and it was probably a little naive, was that we needed to have an honest conversation about the conservation community. We needed to go back to more of a place of, of, of having real emotion, um, real caring, um, and real passion about the environment. And, and not being afraid to be critical and looking at ourselves, the conservation community. Um, I certainly have done that with myself. I certainly think it's important to do with the conservation community at this point, because right now it's like a runaway train of groups competing against each other to raise more and more and more money. And my question is, what is all the money? Where is it going? And then 
we've gone from a place where volunteers could turn into professionals to a place where if you don't have a master's degree or a PhD, you're not welcome. And I don't know that that's helped us. I don't know that spending all your time in the classroom is the best place to prepare you to get out and work on the natural world. Um, For me, I had to learn by being in the natural world. You know, in addition to walking the 3,200 miles, I did about 900 miles of the Pacific Crest Trail, hundreds of miles in, you know, in, in the East Coast, and hundreds of miles around the desert southwest. And it's like, it's those experiences that gave me the drive and the understanding to read and discover more about our environment, to go to Washington and lobby with an authentic voice, not a pre, you know, not having my script written for me to go in and talk about the monetary value of this land or about the fact that, you know, we break out and we have one of everybody talking on this issue. This comes from the heart. It is about the land we need to protect. It is about the air, the water, the wildlife. And so I'm a little, I'm a little, I'm a little disappointed in where we're going. We used to have heroes. We had David Brower. We had different people who stood up, made their voice heard, even Dave Foreman. And where have we come today? We have a monotone voice. We have a muted voice. In many meetings I went in with the conservation community, I would be asked to sit down. And the most conservative voice in the room was the one we got to listen to because they were viewed as the person with the most common sense. I disagree. I think we have to bring back heart and soul. We're losing. We are losing land every day. Look at the planet. It's screaming out. And what are we doing? We're sitting here looking for the most reasonable person in the room? That doesn't make sense. And this this is such a critical point that to get to understand how critically important wild spaces, our wild world is, you have to get out and experience it. Excuse me, sitting in the classroom or in an agenda and in a meeting is talking. And I've said this for years. We can talk and talk and talk. But until you get out and actually do something out there and experience and live in the land and understand that it has its own functions, its dynamic, its balances, and that everything that is out there is critical, whether you want to talk about keystone species or indicator species or umbrella species that we've, and George Monbiot writes about two points that you bring up. A, that we have to change the language of in which we talk about nature and re-engage the sense of awe in awesome rather than break it down into monetary or scientific dry language. And B, that the system must go. And this is a lot of what you're we're talking about today that the system that we are entrenched and embedded in today must go it we have to redefine how conservation and conservationists work toward gaining confidence to bring this voice into this huge and uh, well-funded and well-connected political agenda Well, let me say this, too. I think this is an important point. The conservation community has also gotten very top-heavy in their direction, Um, and I was part of it. Um, it, You know, what we've done is we've encased ourselves in Washington, D.C. to lobby. Lobby, lobby, lobby. Find a few Republican heroes uh, who will say the right thing on the environment and reward them endlessly. And then sit with Democrats and sit and sit and try to get our agenda 
past. And what we found was, what you can see right now is, we keep losing. And, and the other thing that's happening, while we're sitting there in Washington trying to get all these Democrats to do the right thing, they're losing control of the House, of the Senate, and the presidency. And at the same time, Americans are bombarded every night with commercials from Exxon, Mobil, everybody talking about how great they are, how they're working for a safer environment. If I watch one more Exxon commercial that tells me how they're doing all this work on alternative energy stuff, when, of course, they're doing nothing but deceiving the American public, then we understand our message isn't getting through. In the early days of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, we had people going and speaking in all 50 states talking about the need to protect this place. And we had a lot of support. You don't see people going out and doing that. How many people on the East Coast really understand Western public lands? Why? I've asked, I have asked foundations for more than 10 years. Let's go and tour the East Coast and explain to people that you don't own, own the subsurface rights in the West like you do in the East. We are having homes bombarded by oil and gas fumes, by toxic fumes. And, you know, people in the East don't realize that they take a once in a lifetime trip to the West. They see the parks. They say, gee, this is really neat. They go back. They don't understand the complexities and we're not educating them. Why with all these conservation groups that have millions and millions of dollars and they're pooling their resources and putting ads out? They're going after the president. They're going after this Congress. They're educating the public about what's going on. Instead, they just continue to build their money, hire another PhD, do another scientific white paper, and we're losing. We have got to start having a voice with the public, and we also have to have the face of the public. The conservation community needs to be black, brown, white, women. There's a lot of women. There's very few African-Americans. There's very few Native Americans. There's very few Hispanics. We have to diversify our look, and we have to be in every part of the country. We have to be worried about what's happening in Nebraska. We have to be worrying what's happening in the West. And we have to be worrying what's in West Virginia. And we've got to look the part. We've got to be the part. And we're doing some of that, but it has to be authentic. It can't be just that when we need something, we suddenly pull in a group of people and say, look, they all support this. What are we doing to help these people? What are we, one of the biggest lessons you learn about what's happening to our environment is this. When people don't have good paying jobs, when we've lost our middle class, people are more willing to destroy the environment. That's why Trump won. Because people in Ohio and Michigan and West Virginia and places like that said, I don't give a damn about the environment. I need a good paying job. Right. Where, where has the conservation been community? You know, again, in the 1950s and 1960s, the conservation community was in its glory. We were getting every bill we needed passed, the Wilderness Act, uh, you know, any number of legislative things, the Endangered Species Act, et cetera. The reason that was happening was we had a solid middle class. But we've lost that middle class, and now suddenly we're in a place where people are applauding and cheering when President Trump stands up and talks about rolling back regulations, regulations that are going to hurt them, that are going to hurt the environment. We, we, so this 
we need to talk a lot more. So I hope you'll come back and be another uh, be a guest on a, another episode or several because there's so much here. This is not a simple thing. It's very complex and we have to reignite the public and get the public voice who is for conservation and conservationists into the mainstream media. Our media has changed. What the media focus on has changed. And as you mentioned, all these advertisings, it always happens in the middle of a nature program. And then you go to this commercial that is about everything that is destroying the very environment. And it's right smack dab in the middle. And this whole um, virtual reality, experiencing nature through a screen or outside a window versus getting into it. So there's a lot of work we have to do and no time better than the present and our upcoming elections in November of 2018 to start shifting some of this uh, political agenda and unite our conservation voice into a new model. So what we can look forward to in 2018 is a regeneration of conservation, bringing it back to its core uh, and, and not making it about a product as we talked about and what we can do as individuals and unite. So unfortunately, we are out of time today, Stephen. This has been a fabulous conversation of some great, good, general overview background and I would love to have you back to talk about some of the work that uh, in individual projects that Bold Visions is working on. I'd love to come back. So um, that's great. So let's talk about that further because there is so much to do. But once again, meantime, listeners, please check out um, Bold Visions Conservation website. That's B as in boy, V as in Victor, conservation.org. And go to the blog because Stephen's writings cover a wide variety of issues and topics. We've got uh, a person here in Stephen who is knowledgeable firsthand of so many things that are going on and is a great, uh, I think, one of our conservation heroes today of turning conservation back into a land ethic and reengaging people. So once again, Stephen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And uh, folks, meanwhile, why don't you step out into our wild world and see what's out there, get knowledgeable, and what you can do. So we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. <laughs>